This is Dr. Charles Parker, and you're listening to Core Brain Journal. It's a place where I connect both fresh discoveries and interesting different perspectives from advanced mind science with the realities of real people and everyday life down on Main Street. So welcome aboard, folks. Dr. Charles Parker here at Core Brain Journal, and we have a very interesting guest today, Dr. Joel Young, who is on the same path that many of us have been on for a long time, trying to find answers about all the variables, the complexity of what's going on with executive function and ADHD. So welcome aboard, Dr. Young. We're really pleased to have you. Well, it's my pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. So what we're going to do is just do a brief word here from our sponsors, a little intro, then we're going to get started, and then we'll have a little break later on to hear more about them. As you listeners already know, we just love the reality of data here at Core Brain Journal. And today we welcome our clinical friend and our new sponsor partner, Direct Health Access Laboratory. With over 3 million studies, they are deep leaders of experience with the big picture of measuring, for example, methylation, cryptopyrrole, and copper challenges, and much more. They provide a global service with a molecular focus. Stay tuned more later. And then you also know how much we appreciate detailed improvements with mind care on a more residential structured level. So today we're pleased to welcome this additional sponsor and partner with a deep interest in fresh options to address the complexity of adolescent treatment failure nationally and internationally and is built TRICARE friendly. The Barry Robinson Center provides holistic environment right down here in beautiful downtown Norfolk. It sets children, teens, and families on the path to a more comprehensive structured healing process. From personal experience down here, I know their work with families that we've actually shared together. They're a truly different residential experience, more in a moment. So now I'm going to give you an intro for Dr. Young. He is the medical director and founder of the Rochester Center for Behavioral Medicine. As the medical director of RCBM, <laughs> Dr. Young provides care to patients across the lifespan. He's very broad in his thinking, and he's very comprehensive. One of the reasons I really wanted to get him on so he could talk about his perspective uh, about the complexity of ADHD through the lifespan, what we know, what we should know, what we don't know, and what we need to know next to, we, to actually do the best kind of job. So he uh, was the first director of psychiatric emergency services at Crittenden Hospital. And while working with RCBM through these years, he served as Crittenden's chief of psychiatry staff and maintained staff privileges at the hospital there in, in uh, Detroit. So let's talk a little more about his clinical interest, which involves the treatment of attention deficit hyperactivity through the life cycle, as I was saying. He also specializes in treatment-resistant depression. He's probably strong on the homocysteine theory of depression, which we won't go into right now. He has researched and published on chronic fatigue syndrome and fibromyalgia. He oversees all treatment taking place at the Rochester Center for Behavioral Medicine. He has apparently about 40 staff that work with him there, so he's got a big, uh, very active clinical practice doing doing good work up in the 
uh, environs of Detroit, Michigan. So he's also a clinical professor, pardon me, associate professor of psychiatry at Wayne State University School of Medicine. And he uh, works also with family medicine residents uh, to do their psychiatric rotations. So that's a very lengthy uh, but very comprehensive, interesting bio on a guy that's covering the bases in so many different levels, both academically and on the street level. So if you would, if, uh, Joel, I didn't ask your permission to call you, Joel. I hope you're okay with that. Well, uh, be my pleasure. Thank all right, you. so I'm, I'm going to be Chuck. I didn't really get that done because we were jumping to get on this conversation. Uh, Joel, tell us a little more about yourself. I mean, we've covered some some items there, but let's really let the audience know about who you are personally, uh, what you're doing, what your mission is, and, and where you're going with your life up there outside of Detroit. Well, thank you for, again, inviting me, Chuck. I'm, I'm a psychiatrist and a clinical researcher. Um, we're actually uh, outside of Detroit in Rochester Hills, Michigan. And um, so basically my day is composed of taking care of a lot of people with various uh, psychiatric challenges from anxiety, depression. I have a particular interest in ADHD through the life cycle. So we, we take care of uh, a lot of people in a team approach using multimodal approaches, biological psychiatry, psychosocial interventions. We do it kind of in a coordinated way. And then I spend a lot of my time uh, doing clinical research. We do uh, close to 100 trials over the years in various novel medications um, mm. in, 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 in disease states varying from anxiety to fatigue to smoking cessation, et cetera. So when there's data needed, we're usually one of the sites that, uh, that's involved. Very interesting. So tell me this. What do you think, from your perspective, all the work you've done, what would be if you were going to hone in on something that the public needs to know that's actually remarkably persuasive to you that's sort of a, in this age of innocence, which I do think there's a considerable amount of innocence going on regarding uh, medications and diagnosis and treatment for ADHD, what would be your main focus of something you would say, hey, guys, this is something we really need to focus more carefully on, do it more thoroughly, and be more aware of this overlooked, underappreciated aspect of attention deficit disorder executive function? Yeah. Well, it's interesting. So I, I think if you talk to you know, a hundred different clinicians, everybody seems to be interested and intrigued by, by particular things. And sometimes they vary by small degrees. I, I've been interested in, in my career now, it's getting to be uh, 25 plus years doing this, is, uh, is the natural history of ADHD. You know, we, we've, we've nicely identified what this disorder looks like in children, although that's really evolved over the past generation too, understanding uh, inattentive symptoms, not just hyperactive symptoms. And, and so I think we've done a pretty good job um, carving that out and understanding ADHD uh, in children and maybe early adolescents. I'm actually a geriatric psychiatrist. That's where I got my one of my board certifications. And so I'm just naturally interested in what happens in the uh, third and fourth and fifth and sixth and seventh decade of life. What does ADHD look like? 
and, and I'm gratified to say that although when I started thinking about this in the early 1990s, there was a small group of people, and now there's a lot more people thinking about it. I certainly was not the first. Um, but uh, I've been intrigued by the natural history of, of uh, ADHD. And of, of maybe particular note where I try to write about and, and focus on is what happens to inattentive symptoms as people age? And what I have found is a subgroup of people develop chronic fatigue and even chronic pain syndromes. Um, again, this is inattentive ADHD folks um, as they age. And it's this natural history which medicine is always interested in. What, what do diseases become um, as people age that, that has intrigued me? And I do believe that uh, um, chronic fatigue and fibromyalgia can be uh, conditions which develop later in the course of inattentive ADHD. That's so interesting. I, yeah. So you see the ADHD and the complexity of being disorganized and uh, with executive function as having a downstream effect on other somatic activities, not just mind activities. Well, yes. So I would say that as a psychiatrist that very, very involved. I see um, a lot of people, um, and I listen carefully. I, I, I do like to listen. And uh, when you do that, as you know, Chuck, people tell you stories. And after a while, you start to hear similarities in their stories. They're different because everyone's experience is different, but there's some commonalities as well. And what people tell me who come in very frequently, I'm usually not the first clinician or even the first psychiatrist they've seen, but they tell me I've been diagnosed with depression and I've been on various antidepressant medications. Doctor, I've been on Zoloft and I've been on Prozac and I've been on Effexor and I'm not sustaining a, a response. I, I'm, I was okay in the beginning and I just can't continue uh, to feel better. And then I'll ask the question, so what are you really hoping for? And often they, they will say, I don't feel motivated. I don't feel organized. I know what to do. I can actually instruct my children what to do, but I have a hard time doing it myself. And then when you hone in a little bit more, they talk about being poorly motivated. Um, certainly, as you mentioned, having executive dysfunction problems, getting started, staying focused, staying organized. But it's this lack of motivation, we call it an amotivational syndrome, that um, people often talk about. And my observation has been that that particular presentation, I'm fatigued, I'm not motivated, I can't sustain my activities, and it doesn't respond to antidepressants, that's when I start to think that maybe ADHD or inattentive ADHD could be the explanation. Mm-hmm. Yes. So um, a few years ago, you asked me what maybe I'm most content with, was a study that I did and published. And we looked at uh, about 26 people at our single site in Rochester, Michigan, uh, who met criteria for chronic fatigue syndrome. We really didn't ask them if they had um, ADHD. We just recruited them if they met criteria for chronic fatigue syndrome, which is Persistent fatigue, persistent lack of motivation um, that doesn't have another explanation like anemia or chronic disease. 
And um, actually, there's a, a number of these people out there. It was not the most difficult study to recruit for because there are people who really feel poorly and want to come in to a clinical study. And we, um, so we could accommodate about 26 people in our site, 13 of whom um, received placebo and 13 of whom randomly were assigned amphetamine, which is known as Vivant. And we um, did this in a double-blind fashion, and we found quite conclusively that uh, um, when given the standard ADHD medicine compared to placebo, individuals uh, had uh, better cognition, they had improved executive function, and they had less fatigue compared to those on placebo. And it's this study, which um, I would like to duplicate, I'd like to see it in a bigger a bigger study that has been one of my contributions that I'm I'm pleased with. Well, thank you so much. Now, let me ask you this because I'm this is one of the reasons that I really wanted to have you on because I uh, heard a little bit of this when you were talking to Jeff Copper, and uh, mm-hmm. I wanted to take it further down the road because uh, we want to get into uh, a number of different things. Because I I quite agree with you. And this is not in any attempt to steal your thunder. I've been doing this and seeing this happen repeatedly, but I didn't have it tied up specifically with uh, chronic fatigue in that matter because what I think happens, and I, and I would like to ask you, and I'm not really trying to put you on the spot. I'm just trying to have an open discussion about this. It seems to me that I recall somewhere along the line that the uh, actual formation of uh, dopamine and serotonin had something to do with uh, similar uh, n- neurotransmitter evolution variables, where they, where if one was enhanced, the other one just dropped down based on that shift in the mechanisms. Can you talk about that at all? You know, I don't think I'm the the proper person to do that. Okay. Um, you know, I think that that's that's more of a a basic science. I think I could swing at that and and probably miss, and I would probably defer to. <laughs> you know, neurophysiologist uh, yeah. in that regard. I Certainly, just see it clinically, and and I was just thinking, yeah. because you do the research, I thought you might be able to, to address it, but you are talking about some of the same things that I think a lot of people in the country do see, and I'm so glad you're doing the research on it, because it's, it's really kind of not in the literature sufficiently for people to uh, think about it uh, preemptively. It's sort of, it has to walk in the door and just really present in, in a macro way instead of looking at the subtlety of that situation and the pervasive uh, quality of that presentation. Right. So I think your question is really good. Obviously, as, as a clinician, a clinical researcher, you know, I am, speaking for myself, seeing the gross symptom management. Everything probably can be reduced and should be reduced, um, you know, to what's going on on the, on, on the neurochemical level. And, um, and, you know, that is a developing story that I think you are far, uh, the far greater expert on. But as a phenomenologist, as a clinician, I certainly see these folks. And um, I see them to be frustrated. I think they feel a little bit alienated. I feel like uh, a little bit left behind. I would put these patients often uh, in a category of treatment-resistant depression, mm-hmm. um, and what I have found is actually if you ask the right questions and do the proper screening, many of these folks may have depression, but that's not a sufficient uh, discussion. Just 
kind of tickling with the serotonin system um, is probably insufficient for these folks. Um, um, and, and so comprehensive diagnosis, which I know has been something that you've talked about and written about, um, is, 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 is also my mantra. And so I think when patients come in and they're distressed, um, we should evaluate them for major depression. We should evaluate them for anxiety disorder. We should evaluate them for substance use disorder in a comprehensive way. And we should not leave out that probably 10% of the population, at least 8 to 10% of the population, has ADHD. What, what I have been vocal uh, in my way, as have you, Chuck, is, um, is that ADHD probably doesn't go away. It is a persistent disorder. Um, and it seems like adult psychiatrists in some ways have jumped ship on this. They've mm-hmm. um, turned the other cheek and somehow don't take a really good developmental history. Um, it's as if life begins at age 18, and it doesn't. It begins um, early on, and whenever we're interviewing a 25-year-old, we want to ask about their developmental history. We want to ask about their academic history. We want to understand their executive functioning. And that's what good old diagnostic psychiatry is about. So true. I, I think one of the things, Joel, and I'd be interested in your reaction to this, but I think one of the reasons that people don't do it, the assessment is uh, I think we have a deficiency regarding the structure of the diagnostic system that, that exists uh, independent of, of the kind of questions. I, it's really hard to ask the questions if you don't have the criteria clear. Because uh, actually what happens with ADHD, it's so often uh, diminished in terms of uh, a phenomenon that's observable behaviorally, whereas the actual presentation of executive function is is much more cognitively uh, determined and oftentimes quite hidden from behavioral appearances. And so that that's part of the problem. Go ahead. You were going to say something. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with that. I, somehow I think our default diagnosis, however, has become depression. And um, so we, in some ways, uh, uh, half-kiddingly, but actually pretty seriously, when a patient is in our waiting room, we call them distressed. We, that, because that doesn't infer a specific diagnosis. We don't call them depressed because that does. And I think that with the advent of serotonin reuptake inhibitors, now they're very available, they're very affordable. I think if, if somebody shows any sign of distress, the default diagnosis is depression. And you know, I see this all the time. Um, you know, people coming out of the primary care setting is that it's, it's almost hard to walk out of uh, an office without a prescription of sertraline or, uh, uh, or, um, or fluoxetine or something. And, and I, I think that's not a bad guess, but, it's, it, but psychiatry should take a page out of neurology. Neurologists historically have been diagnostically driven, and, and we have some great traditions that they can learn from, but that's one tradition that psychiatry can take from neurology. And I think I agree that although the diagnostic criteria is imperfect, uh, it's a work in progress, and what we have is okay we just have to ask the questions. We have to do the rating scales, and it has to be on our radar. And um, and I, I I see that it's not. I, uh, and and I think if it were, I think we'd have a lot less treatment-resistant depression, a lot less treatment-resistant anxiety. 
Well, let me ask you this question. And, you know, I'm just looking at the time, and I think what I'm going to do is save the, ask you to answer the question when we get back. We'll have a little break for sponsors here. But here's the question I'm going to ask when we get back. The issue is when you get into a dual diagnosis, uh, let's take a moment for you because you've seen so many people and you've been on this theme for a long period of time. What do you do in terms of dealing with individuals who are actually having problems with medication in the first place? They don't want to take medication. And here you as a, as a professional coming in, you've done the good work, you've made the diagnosis, and you say, okay, now they need to take two medications. So and after a little break, I'd like you to say, how do you actually handle that with a patient? And how do you explain? Because that is the ubiquitous problem that we all see. So we'll be back in just a minute, folks. Well, you folks already know that here at Core Brain Journal, we're on a mission to introduce you to resources that make significant contributions to the investigation of those predictable mind science applications. Our colleagues at DHA Lab Group provide a real difference with treatment options for people at every level, from first awareness of mind problems to those frustrating times when even well-informed treatment becomes surprisingly unpredictable. For my entire professional life, from psychoanalysis to brain scans, I've searched for, yes, improved predictability. The good news for all of us, from professionals to patients, remarkably effective research offers useful, cost-effective, organic options far beyond guesswork with psychiatric medications alone. DHA lab tests measure unbalanced biomedical details through easily available testing now available globally for a variety of molecular answers from, for example, methylation, copper, and cryptopyrrole challenges. Check in for more details at dhalab.com core. That's d-h-a-l-a-b.com forward slash core. Well, folks, you know as well as I do that psychiatric treatment failure, especially after multiple medication trials and those very, very brief hospitalizations may prove insufficient to deal at home with the complexity of troubled children and, and those adolescents from 6 to 17 years old. Improved care, those next mandatory steps, should include a more comprehensive approach to address those multiple levels of challenges, from family to peers to school, diagnostically from defiance to depression, on every level for families including military families internationally. The Barry Robinson Center's 32-acre open college-like campus in Norfolk, Virginia, provides safety and security and clean, comfortable living. How do we know? We refer folks over there all the time, strongly endorse what they're doing. So for further information and informed interview, connect at this page, barryrobinson.org forward slash core. Okay, Dr. Young, we're back. So I don't mean to put you on the spot with that, but I'm sure you do this uh, almost reflexly, uh, because yes. it's such a commonplace problem. But I did want to uh, share and ask you to give your ob observations about that next impediment, which is going to be an, an additional reason to not even go into the diagnosis, because you do have to deal with it. What do you do, and how do you handle that? Yeah, I think it's a really uh, interesting question, and a sensitive question, that you know, when we, as clinicians, um, do this routinely, we almost, you, one, in one way can get desensitized to the fact that often, often part of our answers are, are medication based. 
And although it becomes routine for the prescriber, just like it's routine for the surgeon to cut up on a belly, it's, it's not routine for the patient to be prescribed. It's an invasive um, modality, medications. These are brain-based medications. And, and you're right, Chuck. Patients are, ambivalent, are often ambivalent about it and conflicted. And um, whether in Norfolk or, or Detroit. So um, that's a, a universal response. I, I think as, as a clinician, as a humble doctor, I try and educate my patient. I say, this is what I think. I think, the, you know, in the hypothetical patient that we're talking about, I often will say, this is probably, uh, uh, you've had a partial response to an antidepressant. I think in this case, if you have ADHD, I think that could help explain your inconsistent motivation, your fatigue, some of your executive dysfunction uh, symptoms which have persisted despite being on the antidepressant, and I am suggesting a second medication. Mm -hmm. I'm not demanding it. I'm not expecting it. I'm making the suggestion. Mm -hmm. So I, I sometimes tell patients I'm like a pitcher. You know, I'll pitch it. You decide if you want to swing it. Now, that's a good one. I like that. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm totally with you, putting the patient in control so we can have really an evolution in participatory medicine. It's the reason, really, to be speaking with a professional like yourself regarding, uh, really, the democratization of neuroscience for the public, because the public needs to know about these things. And I'm so appreciative of your sharing. I think it's a, a great way to say it, because we really do want the individual patients to feel responsible for their own care and report back to us whether we got it right or didn't get right and really stay with us in the program. So that, that's, that's a good little story. Take a, please take a well, swing and at then it. I, I, yeah, I, I will add to that is, um, so I, I completely agree, and this is really part of your mission on, on, uh, uh, on, on your webpage, is uh, this idea of participatory medicine and, 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 and really giving access to, to patients so they know what the latest thinking is. Um, one of the things I hear uh, when I, I have that observation to see different cities and travel throughout uh, the country and uh, the continent um, is how frustrated people are with access to care um, and particularly access to ADHD care. I'm wondering if that's something that, that you've seen or something that has been a theme that, that, that you've discussed. Do you think no, we patients have good access? No, Joe, we, sh we, we share that one entirely. And it's the reason for us to have this conversation because it's so mysterious and there's so much um, uh, consternation about using stimulant medications in the first place. And there's, and there's so many people writing for stimulant medications with really – uh, having a, a diminished sense of what the targets really should be. I mean, it's just great to hear a guy like you who really has a sense of, of the complexity of the presentation and what the targets actually are and how the medications should work in the first place. I mean, so often people come back and say, uh, you know, is it working? And the patient has no idea what the criteria are for what working is in the first place. So. Yeah, I, well, I think it's a very so important I, point. I agree. I, I will say that we have one advantage, though, because – um, again, uh, I, I, I talk a lot to medical students and, and resident physicians and, and other doctors, and we're all concerned, whatever our specialty is, adherence, are patients actually taking the medication as we prescribe? 
And, of course, if you and I were a hypertension specialist and we were interested in blood pressure management, we'd have the same conversation. If we are diabetologists, we'd be talking about insulin control. So I think it's uh, things that doctors talk about. We, we, we know what best practices are. We just sometimes don't think our patients will follow them. Having said that, I think in psychiatry, and particularly ADHD psychiatry, we have an advantage. And the advantage is if you make a good diagnosis and you use proper medications, patients feel better, and they often feel better quickly. They might have a harder time describing exactly, and sometimes they need our help in articulating their response. But when they stop taking the medication for ADHD or depression, they feel it. They know it. There's a built-in sensor. They start not to feel well. Whereas if you stop taking your medication for diabetes or blood pressure, it might be weeks, months, or sometimes even years before you recognize the loss. Mm -hmm. So we have some advantage. And that's why I think our compliance rates are kind of comparable to some other disease states. Because if you stop taking it and it's been helping you, sometimes our patients, it's been my experience, appreciate the meds more in their absence than in their presence. So true, especially if they have comorbid uh, chronic fatigue and fibromyalgia. I mean, they are going to somatically appreciate what's going on because whatever's going on cognitively, it seems to, uh, I think, accentuate the, uh, the appreciation of, of having insufficient medication on board. So you are always somebody who brings it from the clinic to the bench and so I think there is some theory that there, there, there is theory that you know these these medicines, these stimulant medications, which we seem to play such a pivotal role in ADHD treatment, work primarily on dopamine and norepinephrine. And with regard to fibromyalgia or chronic pain, it's my contention that many folks with ADHD cannot filter out stimulus even painful stimulus, um, muscle pain, um, uh, uh, lower back pain, atypical migraine, etc. They can't filter it out, even tinnitus, even ear ringing. And people without ADHD can just naturally filter out the stimulus. Um, and, and that is thought to be a dopamine issue, that dopamine can help filter out extraneous stimulus. In psychotherapy, we think a lot of our ADHD patients are chronically overwhelmed by their life, but they can also be chronically overwhelmed by their pain. And that's where the fibromyalgia and ADHD story, I think, takes place. Now, we don't have an indication for this at all, but this is one of the areas of great interest to me is that if you treat somebody with a stimulant and you enhance dopamine levels, you can allow them to filter out extraneous stimuli and focus on more positive stimuli. And, th and that's the whole issue of distractibility, not just on a psychological level, but on a physical level as well, mm -hmm. that people can stay more focused and less distracted on the negative. Joel, that's very interesting. I hadn't thought about that before. I hadn't thought about that functional component before. But that's, right. you know, now that you say that, uh, you know, intuitively sounds very correct uh, because it, it just makes sense. It's like it's a commonsensical point that I really hadn't considered before. And I, and I know others may not have as well. Yeah. So 
so psychiatry then, if these theories do add up, then you know, we need to need to do the proper studies and in uh, clinically where I where I sit doing clinical trials, it would be nice to get a, a multi center study doing this. I I did theoretically prove it in one site, but you know science has to be replicated and it should be done in multiple sites um, without you know a biased approach. You try and do it as unbiased possible, and I think. You can't evaluate your own child, really. You have to have other people evaluate your child. So this is my theory, and, you know, I, I, I'm hoping, as you asked me earlier in the broadcast, what I hope to pursue, I hope that we can look at some of these conditions like chronic fatigue, chronic pain, um, perhaps as psychostimulant responsive conditions. And, mm. you know, I'll abide by the answer. If, if, it, if, it, if it's a negative study, we drop it. If it's a positive study, we have to look farther. But but just as you have always said, that you know this is the journey of neuroscience. Um, maybe some of these other conditions that we have psychiatry has not embraced: chronic fatigue, muscle pain, cr- chronic pain, um, which might lead to opiate addiction. By the way, mm-hmm. um, psychiatry might have to embrace that the, these might not be disorders of the periphery, disorders of the muscles but it might be disorders of the brain, the way the brain perceives pain. And, um, and so I think this is, this is why neuroscience just needs total attention. Well, and it addresses the complexity of the presentation. I mean, there are many other aspects, as you well know, uh, of, of uh, variables that are present, but this is a, a variable that is very frequently overlooked. Uh, we see people coming in, as as you've so uh, accurately pointed out, who don't know what to do with themselves, who have had these chronic medical conditions for a long period of time, like fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue. And, and really, until this conversation with you, I hadn't really thought about that manifestation. I hadn't really said to myself professionally, hey, here's something that that we need to really think about and really uh, dive into uh, the executive function portion of it and be more accurate in the treatment so that we're not just looking at this as a another depression condition, derivatives of another depression condition mm-hmm. with, uh, with downstream somatic uh, imbalances. Right, right, right. And, but it, it might answer a lot of questions. For instance, it's hard to watch any news broadcast uh, today. Well, we know it's dominated by a lot of other things, but when, when there's a public health story right now, it's an opiate story that, that we have an opiate crisis in this country, which means we have a chronic pain problem in this country. And we now know that opiates are not the answer. You know, I'm, I was trained in the early 1990s, um, and at that point, uh, long-acting opiates were in vogue, and, um, and we found that to be a disaster. We have found that to be a public health disaster. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean the problem of chronic pain has gone away. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, and so we, we now know that we don't have that option. And, you know, we know that that is a disastrous option. And, and um, so we have to rethink these patients. Um, and, um, and this is a public health issue because... I think if you're unmotivated or inconsistently motivated, you have a hard time getting going in the morning, 
you're underproductive, you're more likely to be underemployed or unemployed, and you're more likely to end up on disability. And one way of being on disability is having a chronic medical condition. So there's a ton of folks out there who are suffering. We don't know what to do with them. They need some type of disability payment or some type of help. And so they, they, they get a diagnosis of a, of a chronic pain condition. And then once the opiates are introduced, it's, it's really hard to back off. I'm thinking that ADHD might be part of this story. Um, you know, and it, it just speaks to the complexity of this disorder over the lifespan. It's one of the few conditions that starts, you know, in infancy or it's certainly in the latency years and probably doesn't really give up until our last day. Um, it looks different through the life cycle, but um, it's, it's a, I think, a persistent problem. Quite so. Now, let me ask you this question as we wind down a little bit here. Do you have yeah. any uh, specific uh, preoccupations, if you will, and that's perhaps an excessive way of saying it, but nevertheless, mm -hmm. preoccupations regarding um, <clears throat> specific medications that would be that you as a professional studying these variables that we're talking about would think would be preferable regarding a medication for co comorbid uh, ADHD in individuals with comorbid uh, pain, chronic fatigue syndrome uh, challenges? Do you have any preoccupations in that regard? Yeah, so the study that I did do, um, again, it never received an FDA indication. It was just a study, a published study, looked at LDX or Listex amphetamine, marketed as Byzance as uh, an excellent agent. Um, mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean some of the other uh, um, mixed amphetamines or amphetamines, preferably longer acting, wouldn't be equally as good. The study just happened to be on LDX. So mm -hmm. I think, in, in my estimation, it's, um, you know, as you've covered, we have two big classes of uh, um, stimulant medications, the methylphenidate and the amphetamines. As a profession, we've moved by and large to long-acting agents because there's less of an abuse potential, less diversion. Mm -hmm. But of the two, methylphenidate versus amphetamine, I would say the amphetamine seem to be a little bit more um, essential in this complex comorbid discussion that we've had where mm -hmm. people have chronic fatigue and, say, a depressive condition. So, um, Well, thanks again, for weighing in on that. That's a, that's a touchy subject, Joel. I mean, I... I didn't want to put you on the spot with that, but I, I quite agree with you. And and uh, I just thought I'd hear your unencumbered view before I got into my own personal experience. But I I'm, I'm appreciate your saying that because everything you're saying has been, it matches my own clinical experience with individuals who are chronically impaired, that, that those longer acting medications are better. It seems like they're easier for a person to manage uh, and if there's no contraindication to using them, uh, they're easier to manage medically with a person because the, the criteria and the, um, as you said a moment ago, the abuse potential and the ability to dial them in effectively and correctly, if, uh, efficiently, is, is improved upon with the, uh, with the uh, extended release because you don't have that uh, PK value fluctuating so much through the day pharmacokinetic, the way the body burns it is pretty consistent so that you don't have people chasing 
chasing the ups and downs through the day with the immediate release medication. So I quite agree with that. Yeah, I think it's easier on the patient. Um, and it's also easier on the doctor because if you prescribe something and you say a long-acting once-a-day medicine, hopefully you can get away with once-a-day. That's not always the case. But once-a-day medicine, then you see them back in 30 days. You can make the assumption that if the denominator is 30, if they've had 30 attempts, that they're going to be, you know, their batting average will be 50%, hopefully closer to 90%. But if you give them a medicine that they're supposed to take every four hours, that means the denominator is 90. And how many people can take 90 pills a month um, and, can, and continue that um, out of none of them? It's unrealistic. I have a few patients who are more compulsive who are able to do it, but most patients aren't. I know I'm not compulsive. And... Um, and so I think compliance is quite much better. So you can actually make, as a doctor, I think you can make a more informed clinical judgment if you use long-acting medicines. And your outcome is going to be more consistent, absolutely. Well, Joel, thank you so much for taking the time. It's a really interesting conversation. I really haven't had a chance to speak with you before. I really very much appreciate it, and I know our audience appreciates having somebody weigh in who's done the research, who's spent the time thinking about these uh, various comorbid conditions with ADHD on a, on a more complete and more thorough uh, researched level. I mean, it's just, it's, it's great. And we really appreciate you coming on board. Well, thank you. And thank you for your contributions to the field and your vibrant uh, uh, blogs and webpage. So I thank you. Thank you well. so much. Now let's, before we close, let's leave a little note where people can connect with you. So we, uh, give them an opportunity to chase you down if they have a need to follow up. Well, I'd be delighted. My website is uh, rcbm.net, mm -hmm. and um, we have a pretty good website. It's it's interactive, and if uh, people want some information about some of the work that we've done or they need to get in touch with us if, if in their area, then it's rcbm.net. Thank you so much, Joel. We'll We'll send them over there. It'll be this uh, will be published probably in about two weeks, and we'll keep you posted and let you know when it happens. It was my pleasure to join you today. Thank you, sir. Thanks for being on board. Thanks for listening to Cobrain Journal. We're working every day behind the scenes to bring you reports that connect research benches with those street trenches. Here we share the complexity of mind science because, as you know, details really do matter. One of the most pervasive, misunderstood challenges is how commonplace medications, like those written for ADHD, are used so regularly without clear guidelines. If you think you'd like more specifics, take a minute to download my two-page PDF packed with video links and references on the absolute essentials of how to start ADHD medications. They're easily available at corebrainjournal.com forward slash start. Thanks for listening. Do connect and stay tuned. Together we can make a difference. <laughs>